everybody? Good afternoon, everybody. That will definitely, uh, you'll hear a lot more of that from me. Good morning. Uh, who meets her church in the afternoon? This is bizarre. Um, good to be with you all. Um, thank you for your gifts. You gave us a bunch of gift cards. For those of you who don't know, you did. Um, you, you gave us, um, yeah, fruit and spices and beans and a lot of gift cards and a Bigfoot t-shirt. And so it's been fun. I think we've used every gift card you've given us already. Like we couldn't wait to just dive in. Uh, so we've, <laughs> we've lived... Uh, Probably life here isn't going to be like this last week, so uh, yeah, I might be asking for a raise or something later. Um, I'm excited to share with you some of my thoughts on the Bible. That happens every Sunday, so that's nothing new, but uh, specifically on the story of the Bible. Uh, If there is, you, you may have heard this, that there's a story at least, well, there's a lot of stories, uh, but I think there's a way you can uh, uh, see an even larger overarching story, which gathers up and includes all of the smaller little stories. That may be news to you. Uh, I hope it's not. Uh, you know this this emblem here, right? Who does? Yeah, <laughs> Wu-Tang, yeah. Uh, November 9th. 1993, uh, two of the greatest hip-hop records ever were released. Uh, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, stay with me, (laughs) and Midnight Marauders by A Tribe Called Quest. Both uh, changed my life, Um, confused my life too, actually. Um, But in, so Wu-Tang, for those of you who don't know, it was a collective of uh, MCs. They're like poets. They would, uh, they would rhyme over drum beats. And there were so many of them that eventually the group started to just like become like, uh, like a, it was like a takeover. And so there's all these like ancillary records grew out of this one group because there's just so much talent in this one group. It was huge. Um, but in 1995, let's see, March 10th in 1995, one of the MCs from Wu-Tang released a record called Liquid Swords. Stay with me. Um, and uh, there was a song, uh, it was track 15, I remember, uh, on, on the disc, uh, called Bible. Uh, and it was Bible as an acronym. You, you know what I mean by that? Like B, period, I, period, L, how do you spell Bible? There's another B. There it is. So it was, they, this, was, this was clever and, and cute, but this was the first time I had encountered uh, the Bible as an acronym. Has, every, has anyone else heard of this before? Okay, well, anyone? What, is it, what do you think they said it meant? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you're cl- you're on it. Yeah, that's close enough. The basic instructions before leaving Earth, uh, and this is that did, didn't originate with them. As it turns out, this is a saying that has been used for a long time, and it's a way of thinking about the role of the Bible uh, in the world, but specifically within the life of the church. Uh, that it is an instruction manual to prepare us for the great evacuation. Uh, but I, I would probably take issue with every single word in that. that for, for number one, uh, I've been reading the Bible long enough to admit there's nothing very basic about it. <laughs> uh, it's definitely much more than an instruction book. And there's nothing in it about leaving the earth. So I don't know where that came from. I do know where that came from, actually. We'll talk about some of that. Um, But this way of construing the Bible or thinking about the Bible in terms of uh, a roadmap to heaven or an instruction manual for saving uh, our lives or saving our souls, uh, while some of that rings true, it might obscure our vision some. Because 
We have to do business with the facts. The reality is that the Christian Bible does in fact tell a large uh, overarching story. Now, when you miss the story, strange mutations can happen in your life and in uh, the community which is taking the Bible as its, its scripture. Um, uh, we can begin to believe that uh, the Bible is merely, in terms of our sharing the news of Scripture, the hope of Scripture, it will boil down to sharing information. The information that the Bible gives us will save your soul. And that also is kind of, what's the phrase, sawing off the branch we're sitting on. Because it's not allowing us to do business with the story, which I will make the case is a summons to participation in the grand story of God. When you don't sense the story of the Bible, um, or that in fact the Bible tells a story, you begin to struggle to make sense of some of its details. I want to be careful here. Don't hear me saying the Bible is just some story. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that. It's just nice literature. Uh, it's, it's something like probably we're unfamiliar with for those of us who read literature. But, but the Bible isn't just one clean story. How many of you have tried to read the Bible starting at page one? You got to like chapter five, I'm guessing, when you got all the lists of names and you're like, okay, I'm done with this. <laughs> Where are the instructions? <laughs> It it, it can be hard to make sense of the story, and that's because, in fact, the story takes many twists and turns and is quite sophisticated and has been written by very brilliant people, and they have been very intentional about the way they've told the story. And I won't use the word here to say the Bible has contradictions, because I think that word is not helpful, but it doesn't always agree on everything all the time. And we can tend to homogenize the Bible like it's and simplify it so much. It's just a story. So knowing the story is not a substitute for entering into the complexity of how this story is told, which is going to be demanding for us. But there's all kinds of instances of people not doing Uh, making sense of the Bible as a story. And it actually, we have situations in the New Testament where I think some of that hindered people being able to make sense of Jesus. Because they had been thinking about the Bible in a way that was actually leading them like off from the path. I think it's important that we know, we can't, all of us uh, who, who would name Christ should be able to, I think, very quickly tell uh, anybody what the Bible is all about. Or, or maybe what the will of the Lord is. I do a kind of Bible, like, introduction to the Bible with someone who's been brand new to the church. I start them here. Because when you sense the trajectory of Scripture from creation to we have a kind of conflict, consummation at the end of the Bible, you get a sense for where the direction history is moving. And that that is not not necessarily easier, but it does bring us to this thing we call faith. Now, uh, let's see what we got here. See, Scripture is not merely a book for us to study and figure out and get right. Now, it's important to get it right. But we can be so obsessed that get it, in getting it right that we actually miss some of what the Bible is trying to say to us. In fact, Jesus has many encounters with people uh, who do not get it, but it's not that he disagrees with their conclusion. It's... In fact, there's rare instances where Jesus will challenge someone's belief system or their doctrines. What he often does is try to help them see that their obsession with being right, their obsession with cracking the code and getting the right teachings has made it so that they can't see him. 
Scripture is not an end in itself for us to just open up, study and figure out and master it. Do you know that, you know, there's a, there's a degree called the Masters of Divinity. Uh, and everyone who takes it knows, learns quickly, you, you don't master the Bible. Uh, but this, this would lead us to believe that the Bible can be mastered. We figure it out, we crack the code, and we have the right formula to tell anyone about but as it turns out, and I love what Brevard Childs has said, very helpful in his introduction to, the, to biblical theology. He says, Scripture is not self-referential, but points beyond itself to the reality of God. The Bible isn't saying, look at us, look at us. The Bible itself isn't saying, I'm God. The Bible is saying, we want to give Readers, an encounter with the great God who is alive in each place and in each time, always inviting readers to believe and enter that story that is being told. Scripture is always trying to maybe facilitate isn't the right word, but facilitate an encounter with the great God who is alive. He's not a dead character from literature. The whole point is that this very God who did these things is the agent and is active in each time and in each place. And we will need more than Bible study to be able to live with that God. We will need trust and courage and the ability to believe and dream and imagine. We won't get off the hook by just saying, I figured it out. Look at this. Look what Jesus says to some good Bible readers. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Jesus is speaking to people who love the text. Their love for the text is not the problem. It's that they've been so close to it, trying to figure it out, that they didn't notice when the very referent of the text was standing right in front of them. Say, hello, I'm the one that you've been, like, if you've been reading the story, you would be led right to me. You would see if you had opened yourself up. And let go a little of being concerned about getting the whole thing correct. You might have had a chance at belief. But this, this is a, a struggle I think we all, uh, we all can sympathize with people uh, like this. We can miss God. We can be reading the Bible every day and miss God. Have you experienced this? If not, stay tuned. It will happen for you. But see, the Bible gives a story because we are, I don't say because, but I think, it's, I think it's helpful because we are people who are formed by stories and narratives. You know that our nation helps us understand something of who we are. Our identity grows out of the story of our country. The identity uh, that we uh, we live and live in and interact with the world through has not been like just downloaded out of nowhere. We've adopted a story. We've participated in a story. And the age that we live in is governed by a story. A story of reason, of scientific research, of medicine, of learning, of individuality. There's all kinds of competing narratives spilling over each other and all of us are learning who we are by them. It's an inevitable fact. I'm not suggesting this. It's the reality. We are taught who to be by the stories that we've been told and we accept. And Scripture is a narrative, a story which re-stories our lives. It doesn't cancel our stories, but it gathers them up into a much larger, grand narrative of God. And the challenge is for the story told in Scripture 
to be the primary story for us in understanding who we are and whose we are. But this means knowing some of it. Okay, how you doing? Okay. Uh, yeah, this this was helpful in the in, uh, Brian Walsh and J. Richard Middleton wrote a book uh, about how we um, how we arrive at the our world views. That is how we understand the world. We all have a pair of um, like lenses, right? Spectacles through which we look at the world and make sense of it. And those uh, lenses through which we look at the world, is that, that's what I'm getting at with story. They said uh, uh, a lot of... Here, let's go back. How do you go back with this? Here we go. Yeah, Walsh and Middleton, they said, these stories are usually aimed at answering some fundamental questions. Who am I? That's a question everyone's still struggling to answer. Uh, where am I? What's wrong? And what is the solution? A lot of stories are aimed at addressing, I think they're right, these basic questions. And N.T. Wright has added a fifth question. He says, in addition to who, we are, who are we, where are we, uh, what is wrong, and what's the solution? He says, and what time is it? That is maybe where are we in the scheme of the flow of history? Where, where do we stand as people? And this is the fundamental question being asked by Israel. It's the thing that uh, generates the Bible. Most of the Bible probably uh, written down during the period of the exile when questions like this would be pressing. Who are we? Where are we? What's the solution? And what time is it? Where do we stand? The Bible seeks to engage all of these questions. And it, believe it or not, it has some thoughts on all of those. Who we are and where we are and what time it is. Okay, how you doing? Great. Thinking caps for one minute and then it'll be, it'll be smooth sailing, I promise. So I've mentioned that uh, over and over here, that the, the Bible does, in fact, tell a grand story from its beginning to its end. Um, but story might not even be strong enough because it's more like a Shakespearean play. It's more like a drama. We're not mere readers, and I've hinted at this, but the text itself will invite us to become actors in the drama. Now, some have called uh, the Bible like a theodrama, that is a drama about God. Some have called it the drama of creation or the drama of redemption. Uh, or you might call this drama God's will, God's plan. Uh, whatever you name it, it won't let you as a reader off the hook by just studying it or just reading it. And so it might be helpful in the spirit of a play to think about the Bible like that, that there are actually specific acts within the biblical story. There are moments within the biblical story that are significant, and each one, as it's coming to a close, uh, is, is connected to what follows. Now, Act 1 I could quiz you on this, but that's pretty, pretty easy, right? Creation. You know that the Bible opens with a story, uh, very odd and um, kind of confusing, very old story about God making the world. It is an origin story for his people. It tells us, uh, number one, it gives us every indication that we can hope because we learn in the creation story that God has given the world out of his own wisdom. But we learn uh, in creation we're, we're presented not with a totally organized world. Often I'll hear people say something like we're trying to get back to how it was at creation because it was perfect then. No, that's not the idea. 
It's a beginning. God makes a world, and as we're presented with a world that is, um, I like, uh, wild and waste. It is unformed and barren. And God begins to, by speech, bring order to a barren place, making it a habitable environment for people, for birds and cattle, with hills and streams and lakes. And he fills the waters to the brim with creeping things and fish. And at each stage of God's creating, he will step back. The text will say, Vayar Elohim Kitov. And God saw that it was good. Each time God starts to build and finishes the work, you get this evaluation. Kitov, this is good. What I'm doing is good. This is important. Never does the text leap out and say it's perfect. Because it's not perfect. And this is an important point, that the Bible doesn't begin with a perfect world. The Bible begins with God's good world, highly organized. And, and on day, uh, uh, day six, he makes a creature he calls a human being. This is what the text says. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. And according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. God, after making this beautiful, good, useful place, sets in it an image of himself. And see, this this human being is the key which moves Creation from its goodness to what we might call perfection. That is to its fullness, to God's desired end or place. Maybe end isn't the right word because there's actually no end in the Bible, which is awesome. But God makes a human being and they are instrumental in moving creation forward. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, there are libraries full of answers to that question. But the text keeps it pretty simple. It says they will be rulers. (laughs) They will be like little kings. Genesis is not interested in like our bodies, like what we're made of, our material. It's interested in what we do. What it means to be in God's image is to rule and bring into further order what God has already started. That's who you are if you're a human being, as told by Scripture. Human beings are little images of God which embody His great rule. And they're benevolent rulers, we find out. We are to take creation and fill it to the brim with us. Imagine a world populated with people whose sole purpose it is, is to bring creation under the reign and rule of God. That's what God wanted. And it would be good for all of us if that happened. And then this chapter, this first chapter, ends very similar to the way the next chapter begins, which is with, this uh, rest of God. You familiar with this? Now, the rest of God in Genesis chapter 1 is not about God's break from work. It's about Him coming to take up residence within creation. This is a temple story. The earth is described as a temple wherein God would live with and alongside His image Bearers. The next chapter opens and we're brought to a garden in a place called Eden. And there 
we find God putting people in the garden to work it. And lo and behold, from time to time, God comes out into the garden and walks among them. See, Eden is also being described as like the inner room of a temple. You know what temples are, right? They're houses or homes for gods. See, Genesis is trying hard to show you how this story goes. God is making a good world, and he's not going to make it and step back and watch you do it. And then one day when you've got it right, bring you on up to heaven. That's not how it goes. God rather comes to inhabit the creation he's just made that he might live with and among his image bearers. That's the point of Scripture. That's the point of Scripture. Now, Plato, not Plato, Plato and Aristotle and some of the Greeks, Plato has a phrase in his dialogues or an image where he describes the soul as like being behind the rib cage peering out and the soul is trapped in the body like, like a prison house looking through the bars. That's Plato. That's Greeks. Hebrew Bible, Hebrew scriptures aren't interested in the salvation of our souls. They're interested in the goodness of creation, fully embodied, living in God's good world. And where is God? He's there among them. That's the point. That intimacy that we see in the garden in Eden is what God had hoped for. The humans, how are you doing? Humans are not made to live forever, we find out. Well, that would be stupid if they were, because if 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 we were made, there's no story in the Bible. You, you get uh, you get an image of God uh, sort of stepping down in the dust, forming, breathing like a mouth to mouth, breathing to life, a dust body. And it gets up. Imagine that human being getting up and saying, thank you, God, I'll take it from here. I don't need you anymore. No, they're dependent creatures. We are mortal. We can fall off a cliff. We can hit our head on a rock. We can get eaten by a crocodile. We are temporary, mortal, dust creatures. But is that God's will? That we would only show up for a moment and vanish? No. How do we know? Because he sets a tree in this place, which is called a tree of life. That we might, being dependent on God, not die. But learn to depend on him for understanding life in his good world with him. Okay, so how does that story go? It lasts a whole two chapters. In chapter three, I don't think I have a slide of it. We can't possibly read something from every act. But uh, in chapter three, one of the creatures over whom humans are to rule are um, deceived. And they opt for a different kind of world. And we've called this, people have called it, the fall. I have a lot of problems with this part of the story. And I think the fall is kind of not helpful, but it'll work for for our, our basic overview. This is a moment when humans in the story of the Bible, at least two humans within the story of the Bible, have opted for a different way to find wisdom and true life. And the end of chapter 3, probably the saddest few lines of the entire Bible, show the human beings being exiled from the garden, and God places some warrior-like spiritual beings with, sword, with a sword at the gate blocking the way to the tree of life. This is the world we inhabit. <laughs> Temporary. You've been to funerals, right? You've been to hospitals. You've watched the news. You've been to downtown Palm Springs. You've seen the problems. You, you've seen the world that we've created for ourselves. Yet the story of Scripture does not end with humans opting for a different way. Because just as much as the story is all about God coming to take up residence in his good creation, it is equally about his faithfulness to us given our ineptness, our inability, (laughs) our propensity to distrust. The story of the Bible is describing God's commitment to not, as the Greeks might have it, throw the world in the trash can and free our souls, but to redeem it, 
to restore it and to bring it back in line with that goodness headed towards that perfection that God has always wanted. Now, number three of this story, Israel is probably the most important for us. And usually when people are describing the Bible and try, as a story and try to make it real simple, they'll say something like, uh, the Bible's simple, creation, a fall, recreation. Or creation, um, a rebellion, and then heaven, or something like that. That's fine to talk about it that way, but what about Israel? It's a key moment in the story. Why do we care about Israel at all? See, the story is all about God bringing back in line, making things that have gone wrong right with human beings. The human problems in our world require human solutions, divine yet human bodies, human hearts and minds. And so what does God do? He does exactly what you thought he'd do. By the way, after the fall, we see creation expanding in a very deformed way. It's not anything like what you imagined it would have been if the fall didn't happen. By chapter 11, after a great flood and all kinds of challenges, uh, the Lord summons a couple from what is today like Iraq, Mesopotamia. They're not Christians They're not even Israelites. There's no Israel at this point. There's no, like, Jews or Judaism. It's Abram, Avram and Sarah, right? And they are, we're told, old. That's what you want for a good mission team. (laughs) Old. Oh, and barren. Old and barren. As readers, we see barren and we're like, this train isn't going to go very far. But lo and behold, this, this elderly, infertile family is God's solution to human rebellion in a world gone awry. That's Israel. This is Israel's grandfather. Israel is the elect people of God. They've been summoned and called while the rest of the world is following their own desires. God Abram, you and Sarah, your kids right here. Look at me. Trust me to the extent that you can commit yourself to me and take a risk and believe me. I will use you as my vehicle of blessing, which is what God always wanted. Genesis chapter one, verse 28. And he blessed them. That's what God wants. It's to bless creation. How's he going to do that? In an elderly and fertile couple. All they have to do is trust God. That is God's plan for creation. Not just to save Abram and Sarai's souls, but to use them to make an entrance back into the lives of the nations. What's special about them? Nothing. You make the case not much special at all. There's a lot of unspecial stuff about them. And how good are Abraham and Sarai and their kids? Good guys? Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael? Well, they're they're not. I'll save you the time. Like, I could go like, eh, but like, they're just, they're, they're no better than me and you. I heard Jonathan Sachs say once, he was chief rabbi, passed away a couple years ago. He said, Jews are human only more so. I love that. Look what, look what God says to this couple. And the Lord said to Avram, go you forth from your land, from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I will let you see. I will make a great nation of you, which is what people were trying to do in the chapter before this, but failed. Uh, I will give you blessing and I will make your name great. Be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. He who curses you, I will damn. The clans of the soil will find blessing through you. This is the story of Scripture. Human beings called to be elected. They're elected by God. Did you know if you're in the church, if you are in Christ, you are the elect. I don't mean by elect, you get to go to heaven and your neighbor gets to go to hell. I mean you've been elected to take God's blessing to the world. Like we elect a president, not to encourage him, but so that he'll lead us. 
We've been elected by God. We've been thrust into this drama of bringing blessing. Now, how good was Israel at bringing blessing? They're about as good as we were. Right? We struggle with this. It requires the faithfulness of God, which brings me to act four. How are we doing? When, when I've passed my time, Danielle or Scott, just give me a signal. <laughs> I'll say a prayer. Um, <laughs> act four is Jesus. And Jesus, we could just call act four Israel because honestly, there's not a significant shift. Why? Because Jesus, in fact, is Israel. Jesus does not appear to start Christianity. That's not the point here. Jesus didn't come to do away with everything that the prophets and the writings and Moses had told the world. It wasn't to cancel all that out and say, now I'm going to hear to save souls. The Jews were interested in justice and uh, the temple and the, the earth and Israel and the land and Sabbath. And I'm not interested in any of that. I'm here for souls. None of that. That's insane. Look, Matthew chapter one, verse one. Let's let's pretend we had just finished reading the books of the Old Testament uh, according to the Old Testament. Right. We end at Malachi. We get that page between and it says it's blank. We turn it again. It says the New Testament. We turn it again and we get the gospel according to Matthew. This is how Matthew starts. This is the first line of the New Testament. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, which is, by the way, a quote from like four different places in Genesis uh, really, the account of the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we as readers, having read the Hebrew Bible, should say, oh, oh, this is God being faithful to his promises that he made to Abraham to be a vehicle for blessing for all the nations. I see what Matthew's saying here. Jesus is not a new story, but he is a climactic moment within the ongoing drama of creation. Jesus is the moment when the age-old promises are being fulfilled, that God would use some of Abraham's kids to bring life and blessing and flourishing to all creation. Jesus is a part of that story. Not some other story. You try to lop Jesus off from the story of the Old Testament, you're left. In fact, there were some early, uh, early uh, writers in the church that tried to do that. Marcion is the most obvious. Marcion said the God of the Old Testament is radically different than the God of the New Testament. And so he actually went through with a pair of scissors and cut out the parts of the New Testament that sounded too much like the Old. We do that too. We do that too. But look, it's not just that Jesus is an Israelite. It's not just that Jesus is God bringing to fulfillment something he's always wanted to do through Israel. He never gave up on Israel. There was an exile. There was a monarchy that failed. But God never gave up. He still brought a child of Abram, a king from Abram. Uh, that's what David's all about. But look, at there's more. Look, a little, little later in Matthew chapter 1, look, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That is God with us. He's not just an Israelite. See, the New Testament is all about what creation was all about. God coming to take up residence in creation among his people. In fact, Matthew will end his gospel with these exact words, and I shall be with you always until the very end of the age. But Jesus Christ is the Lord, embodied, incarnate. You're familiar with this doctrine of the Trinity, right? You've heard of this? We don't use that language a lot in our restoration churches. It's a thing. It's a thing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son of God is, in fact, God. And He comes to take up residence in creation to teach people 
how to bring their lives in line with what God has always wanted. Not to challenge them to a better life, to give them a new way of life, but to bring the people of creation in line with God's purposes. And he does that by washing them of all of their guilt, cleansing them, and filling them with his very self. God has always been trying since the very first pages of the Bible to, to be welcomed into creation by people. God wants to live with us. Amen. But now, how are we doing? Act 5, the church. And this is where it starts to, to become, I think, um, challenging. Because the story of the The Bible kind of ends at Acts uh, 28, verse 31. The book of Acts is kind of the end of the story in the Bible. Did you ever notice that? After the book of Acts, what do we get? Like a bunch of ancient mail. (laughs) Like a bunch of letters written to different people and churches and groups. But the story itself and those letters will give an indication of that earlier story. But the story itself concludes with, and Paul, I'm paraphrasing, went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God unfettered from house to house. Dot, dot, dot. And then, at the end of the Bible, after all of these letters, we have an apocalypse, an unveiling. So the church are these people who are a part of the story of Israel. They become elect. And they are in the Messiah. They have, they have adopted the vocation that God gave to Adam, that God gave to Abram, that is to be a blessing. They have opted in to the people of God. And then we have, at the end, an indication of where things are going. And this is something to behold. The the way the Bible concludes is startling. Look at this. We're going to just read ten verses. We'll come back and we'll have communion. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Skip ahead a few verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will serve Him. And they shall see His face. And His name will be on their forehead. And they will be, there will be no more night. They need no light of a lamp or a sun for the Lord. God will be the light. And look at this. And they will reign. Forever and ever. The Bible concludes not with the evacuation. There's no image here of souls escaping bodies to go live in the sky. There's nothing like that. Instead, you have a city described as a temple, thousands of miles in size. The whole thing is temple. What's a temple? Oh, it's a home for gods. The whole thing is temple. And the people that live in this new temple 
are described as priests, like the priests of Israel with God's name on their foreheads serving in the temple day and night. It's like Eden all over again. It's like the temple all over again. And where is God? He's there. There's no, there's no temple because the whole thing is temple. Where is God? He's there. It's described, the, the consummation, what we describe as heaven, right? It's actually a wedding ceremony where the holy city descending from God and the earth being wed and creation being restored. So that was Jesus, the whole point of Jesus' resurrection. Not to say the body and the world are going to be thrown in the trash can and God's going to send our souls to, to the sky. No, because Jesus' resurrection is God's reaffirmation. Creation is good, and I want to redeem it. Even Jesus, after he raises from the dead, you see the disciples straining like, Jesus? Is that you? You look different. No, it's me. You can touch me. He says, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. Do you have something to eat? (laughs) The Lord embodied is a picture of what's coming. And it's what we see at the end of the Bible. Heaven and earth being wed. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the difference? All this, you're being really hard on our souls and saving souls, Jason. Well, there is a difference. See, the story of the Bible is about God coming to take up residence in his renewed creation. We, the church, have been brought into that story. The story of the church ends, but it hasn't ended. We are them, and they are us. We're the church. We inhabit that story. That same story of spirit-filled, spirit-powered people who take up residence in different neighborhoods and share the good news and heal the brokenhearted and take care of the needy and who give their, their possessions away like it's going out of style because they believe that creation is headed toward a consummation. Them who are quick to lend and take care of the needy, who care about the needs of the poor and the body, not just their souls, and whether or not they get to go to heaven after they die, but embodying the future in the present. What will it be like one day? Well, it'll be like all temple, God with us. What would it be like now? Well, let's live that now. That's what baptism's all about, right? Being baptized into Christ to Take up that story of what would it look like if Jesus came and was running the show? That's what we're left to struggle with. Not just keeping the rules. There are lots of commands in the Bible we need to keep with all of our heart and shame on us and perish the thought that we would compromise even the smallest of God's commands. They're there for us, but they're a part of this story. We can't get off the hook by just following the commands. We also are the spirit-filled people who inhabit the story which is headed towards a creation wherein God is among us. So the cross then becomes a focal point of this story. It's when everything changes, which is uh, why we're going to have communion. I got the wrong device here. We can put it like this. This is rough and doesn't make a ton of uh, uh, a sense in, in, every, in every direction. But, but you see creation. It's good and it's headed upwards until human beings reject. And you see the story of history just take a deep dive. God calls Israel to bring that story back in line. But they are like everyone else, compromised by sin. So God gives Jesus Christ. And all who are in him, we start to see already the future is breaking into the present. Already, what it shall be one day is making an appearance today. And we are brought into the story there. And at the end of the Bible, it's in fact not an end. It says, C.S. Lewis says, further up, And further in. 
But the church sits at this place on the other side of the cross with a story where we know. So, so this helps. It's not just, just about following some religious way of life and then having awesome careers and families. No, we've been caught up in the drama that this story, I think this is the point of the Bible, defines who we are. If someone asks, who are you or what's your, what's your deal? It's this. We believe that the world belongs to God and he wants to be with us. We believe he shall be with us. And so we're already living because he's already among us in unique ways. Thank God for the cross. Let's pray and have the Lord's Supper. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of uh, your words in the Bible. We thank you that you've, you've, um, you, you are aiming to restore us. We fall uh, prey to lesser, less impressive uh, stories, stories uh, which which don't um, don't heal us and don't provide hope. But we thank you that Scripture um, uh, guides us and encourages us while simultaneously grabs hold of us, God. I, I thank you that you give us purpose. We thank you that because of the cross and resurrection, we know where things are going. Because of what you've done at the cross and the empty tomb, because of your being seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, we do not despair. We find courage. Uh, we, we're able to take risks uh, in your name. We thank you for that, God. Uh, We thank you for this meal, uh, which in in a little cup seems to tell that whole story every Sunday. That creation was, uh, because of our uh, desire to follow our own hearts, to reject you, uh, creation was in a tailspin. But you stepped in and you provided a way for the world to move forward and for people to take up your calling. We thank you for that, God. Uh, From wherever we come to this meal, Father, we pray you will encourage our hearts, uh, that you will stir our hearts, and that you will uh, comfort us, Lord, in our weakness. It's in Jesus Christ. Amen.